This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Rebecca Ford. Hi. And with David Canfield. Hi. So today we're going to uh, follow up on that Tony's preview you heard last week since the Tony Awards happened. We're going to talk about the best TV and film of the year so far because it's June. We're going to talk about new releases and get into our Pride flashback today to 1997's in and out It really is a lot to get into, even though uh, in theory we should be slowing down because it's summer. Um, so Richard... Honestly, start with the Tonys for me because uh, I didn't watch the Tonys live or the Barry finale live. I don't know how I'm allowed to exist on a podcast without having done either of those things. Um, so I we need a lot of catch up on the Tonys. How'd they go? You know, they went pretty well. Um, I think the, the the ratings were up apparently about 40 percent from last year's historic low. So that's, <laughs> I guess, mildly encouraging. Um, once, you know, like they did last year, they broke up the show they had a um, something they called the T- Tony's first act that was just on Paramount Plus, which is, you know, CBS's streamer. Um, and that was hosted by, by Darren Chris and Julian Huff. And then at 8 p.m., uh, they went live on CBS proper uh, for the Ariana DeBose hosted main event. Um, and so the, some of the smaller quote unquote awards went out um, from seven to eight and then eight on um, was the big stuff. And um there was a moment there during the the, the main broadcast where uh, they had been at the top of the show, uh, really, you know, kind of highlighting the diversity of their nominees. Uh, m- but much like last year, you watched as those nominees didn't win category at or after category. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, dear, I think this might be going badly. Um, but then, you know, things picked up. And I think that you know, a strange loop uh, winning best musical uh, along with best book of a musical um, that was, you know, that capped the evening off with That's the kind of huge. right energy. And, um, um, and, you know, I think that uh, obviously that was one of the big shows company, the revival was so uh, Patty Lapone won a Tony. So there was, um, you know, kind of classical, you know, Broadway stardom on stage, but there was also the, the new and the vibrant and the exciting. Um, so that's always a good balance at the Tony Awards. I feel like even if you didn't watch the Tonys, you may have seen uh, clips of Ariana DeBose uh, as the host and the calls for her to host the Oscars, which seems yeah. like uh, we've been here before. Uh, Hugh Jackman did it. Neil Patrick Harris did it. Um, should Ariana DeBose host the Oscars? I mean, I'm I, sure. I mean, she's already hosted an Oscar pre-show, you know, the year before yeah. she won an Oscar. Um, she was great at it. She was a she was a very competent host of, of the Tonys. Um, 
you know, a very, you know, theater kid energy, but that that works for for the Tonys for sure. Um, she got to sing, I think, three times throughout the show, reminding us of, you know, partly why she has an Oscar. Um, and uh, just, you know, she 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 held uh, things together with with the right mix of humor and sort of elegance. And, you know, uh, the Tonys demand a certain old style classiness you know um mm-hmm. people have tried to make it young and hip and fresh and that just does not work because it's the tony awards mm-hmm. um so i think she found the right balance and um that is a, a deceptively hard task it's it, you know people would maybe say oh the oscars they're the bigger telecast it's harder to host but the tonys have to contain a lot of moving parts usually the host they want to have do kind of performances basically and um and she was definitely up for that so so that was good. And, you know, Darren, Chris and Julianne Huff were, were, were pretty good, too, uh, I'll say. Um, so everyone was kind of on their best that night, um, minus Hugh Jackman, who did perform. And then immediately after it was announced, I mean, the next day that he had tested positive for COVID. And it was like, well, maybe, oh maybe that explains something about that music band performance. Yikes. Um, David and Rebecca, did you guys catch any of the Tonys or the chatter about the Tonys? Um, I watched the opening number that Ariana did, and I thought it was amazing i think she's so great uh i wouldn't mind if she hosted the oscars though i do feel like i don't know if she'd get like eaten alive for that theater kid energy at the Mm. oscars but um i think she's just so talented and i watched a few you know clips i didn't watch the whole thing through but it seemed like a really entertaining show and i feel like they often do a really good job with that one I get so mad at the idea of her being eaten alive for theater kid energy at the Oscars because I know exactly what you mean. We all watch it happen to Anne Hathaway, but it's like, what do you want? Like, right. you put someone on a stage to entertain you. What, like, do you, would you rather have Seth MacFarlane, like, making the whole thing look stupid? It's, I mean, we talk about this in Oscar season two, but the idea of what an Oscar host should do, I feel like no one is ever going to, like, truly decide or know what they want that would make them happy. Yeah. I also think for her sake, I don't think she should take that job. Like, oh, no. take that job. No. that's a lose lose <laughs> job. Does. Like, yes, exactly. Uh, Olivia Craighead at the New Gawker, um, she wrote a piece kind of saying that Ariana, Ariana DeBose was too good for the Oscars. She was saying, you know, Anne Hathaway gets painted with that theater kid brush, but Ariana DeBose is um, the girl at Stage Door Manor who gets every lead and then show, transfers to your high school and is just like a killer and just like takes every big role, you know, and and um, I think uh, that would suggest maybe that she has uh the a higher competence in a way to host the Oscars. But again, I hope she doesn't because it is a pretty thankless uh, task at this point. I say save us, Ariana DeBose. Host the Oscars. You have so much goodwill. No one's going to tear her apart because she's too likable. Take the risk. <laughs> but also, I want what's best for her. And Maybe her and Jackman do it together. Do. I would watch you it. You know, a passing of the torch of some kind. Oh, that would be good. Does the fact that he didn't win the Tony mean that he's going to be hungry again and needs to, to keep trying? Could be. Yeah. Um, well, Richard, we're going to stay on you for a little bit because uh, as our critic, you have taken over the job of writing the best movies of the year list. Um, and as a group, we all put together best television of the year list, which we can talk about as well. Um, but Richard, you know, movies are our thing here. I think so far this year, we haven't necessarily gone um, gone too hard on Oscar buzz for anything that's come out this year. But mm-hmm. uh, looking at your list, there's been a lot of good stuff anyway. There has been. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're putting this up because we are roughly halfway through the year. Um, so this is meant to be more of a kind of like here's stuff to watch as we head you know, into the next uh, portion of the year where we will see a lot of potential awardsy stuff. Um, you know, there 
I would say it's been an okay movie year thus far, um, but there have been some smaller highlights, things like Kimmy, the Steven Soderbergh, um, Zoe Kravitz movie that uh, was on HBO Max or still is. Um, uh, so you Won't Be Alone, which uh, the movie from Australia slash Macedonia that I think I raved about on this podcast. Uh, start, yeah, I saw yeah. it at Sundance because you convinced me to do yeah. it. And I was so glad I did. That's so good. I, I, I'm assuming we'll when, on the on the post we'll have you know um, links to where these things can be streamed. But that's definitely one worth seeking out. Um, it's about a witch. It's it's interesting. Um, and then you know Petite Maman, which technically was awards eligible last year, but they they did a, a release so delayed that it, I think it came out in April. So it's like that does not for me really count as a 2021 movie. Um, that's yeah. uh, the movie uh, from Celine Shiama. Uh, who did uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, this is a 70-minute sort of fantasy fable drama uh, about a little girl meeting another little girl in the woods. Um, and uh, it, it's a really beautiful kind of thing. I watched it with my parents. If people are looking for something to watch, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Good <laughs> parent summertime movie. summertime visits with their folks. Um, it It is a sweet, and, and your mother particularly might <laughs> might appreciate it. Um and then I had, uh, I also have on the list uh, something I saw much uh, well after it, it first premiered. I think it was at Cannes last year. Um, is a movie called Hit the Road from Iran that um, was recently a critic's pick in the New York Times. Like it, it's gotten well reviewed, but I don't know if it's people are, are too aware of that movie. Um, it is, as the title would suggest, a road trip movie with a family, um, kind of akin to Little Miss Sunshine. There is, you know, the grumpy dad and the cute little kid and the worried mom and then um the sort of older son um who seems very anxious about something and as the movie goes you realize that um this is not just a normal road trip they are headed toward the border so this older son can flee the country essentially Mm. um and so it adds this mounting kind of tension and drama um and and sadness to it that it's so well rendered and um the director his father uh is a big director in iran and um the movie, I think, subtly is, um, you know, taking aim at the government, uh, a very repressive government in that country, uh, while also reveling in the beauty of the natural landscape uh, there, which changes from desert to kind of green, verdant mountains. And I don't know, it's a really striking film that's that's very, um, you know, I think a lot of foreign cinema that you see at festivals tends to be in the sort of Romanian New Wave style, very spare, no music, you know, no, no fussy camera work, just you know, kind of we're going to focus on this character drama. But this one has that, but also an abundance of style and 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 there's tons of like Iranian uh, pop songs that play throughout. And I was really, really taken by Hit the Road. So I hope people will check it out. Yeah, that's one of the ones on your list I had not heard of at all, um, which is the value of mid-year lists like this, I think, especially because it can be hard when you get to the end of the year to sort through everything. It's good to be able to highlight things at the midpoint like this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just guideposts. I mean, look, you know, we have there is some fun summer counter programming coming to theaters. Mrs. Harris goes to Paris, for example. I think this podcast most anticipated movie of the season. Of course. Um, But, you know, if you're if you're not feeling the offering out at the theaters, which people should be going to if they feel comfortable, um, this is a hopefully a good list of stuff to work your way through. And at least I would say maybe half of them are readily available on streaming services. Um, well, one that's not on your list, and I'm not here to badger you for, but would be on mine, I think many others, Everything Everywhere All at Once, is now available for streaming after a really remarkably successful run in theaters. Um, it's up to you if you want it on your list, Richard, but it would be on mine, and I think people should check it out. Um, David or Rebecca, anything that you have loved this year that either is or isn't on Richard's list? 
Um, I really loved Great Freedom, which was the, I think, Austrian uh, Oscar entry, and it was shortlisted. Um, it's a post-war, very, very dramatic, very sad uh, queer film, but um, really powerful. Um, I caught that, I think, <laughs> on an iTunes rental. Um, mm. And I, I did also want to shout out one movie on Richard's list, uh, Benediction, which I, um, another queer uh, <laughs> war film uh which is it really um I, i'm just kind of uh, obsessed right now with terrence davies um biopics and the way that he has rendered these really queer stories in this um beautiful cinematic language um i saw it at the castro theater in san francisco which felt very very appropriate <laughs> uh at the san francisco film festival and um it was uh, it was really moving. It's a really moving movie, and the final shot of that movie is so haunting and pretty powerful. It's kind of Davies, uh, kind of going most directly at his own. It's not about his life by any means, but like his own kind of sexuality yeah. and stuff, which he's been sort of cagey about in the past. And um, it's a historical drama about a real life poet um, that uh, Siegfried Sassoon, and it's really sad. Uh, it's about the trauma of world war one um and how it affects this poet and his circle of of queer friends but it's also funny i mean there's a yeah. lot of it's I mean, catty the, the, gospel, <laughs> the gospel writer should take notes i yeah. mean there is some a, a grade a like bitchiness in this movie um uh spewed off by a lot of cute british guys and um yeah it's it's i saw it at, at toronto last year and um kind of it was on the streaming you know part of the the festival uh and was just in my Airbnb and was like, hey, I'll put it on. And I found myself so engrossed. Um, mm -hmm. So people, yeah, really should seek Benediction out, especially during Pride Month. Watch the sad gay movies. Yeah. Uh, so as I mentioned, we'll also have a list of the best TV of the year so far, which is a really uh, delightfully wide-ranging list, as is appropriate for um, a lot of us putting our heads together to to pick things for it. Um, Rebecca, people have heard you talk about Pachinko, but you got to write about that for the list. Um, anything that you are proud of, either that or something else that we picked to highlight? Uh, I, I'm I'm always happy to write about Pachinko, and I, I feel like uh, that's the show I've been sort of supporting um, since it first came out and we first started covering it. So it was it was nice to see it included in this as well. Richard, you wrote about the staircase, which uh, has taken up a lot of mental energy. Of I feel yeah. like David and I have talked about it a lot too. <laughs> I, I feel weird constantly recommending that people watch the show with like three horrible, you know, depictions mm -hmm. of someone dying on a staircase. <laughs> but like, it really is rewarding. And I find I did finish the series uh, recently, um, and it, I think they really stick the landing. It's poignant. It's chilling. It's, um, you know, I, I, we talked about the show already, but like, it, it just is such a I think masterclass on how to do this kind of true crime um, because it is commenting on the nature of true crime. Um, there has been stuff recently where um, the, the subject of the, of the show uh, who is still alive uh, has kind of come out against the accuracy of the show as has another character, um, another, another a woman who, who is depicted on the show. Um, and look, there are always going to be those questions of, of how exactly accurate it is. But I think the broader points that the staircase is trying to make, um, really come across no matter what and so yeah people should seek it out there are harrowing scenes you have been fair warned but like um i think it's really worth that yeah david i'll promote you uh if you don't want to that you wrote a really great piece last week kind of about that very thing about the staircase deconstructing true crime when there have been so many other true crime shows out this season 
Um, and I feel like that really clarified for me what makes this show unique. Yeah, and I think the last two um, are, to Richard's point, particularly rewarding in the way that um, they subvert your expectations on what how a tr- true crime thriller should end. Um, I think that the increased prominence of Tony Collette's Kathleen, um, like episode seven is really her episode and she's so fantastic in it. Um, but it's not what you often see from these shows and under the banner of heaven. Um, I, I talked about the sort of fading of Daisy Edgar Jones's character, Brenda, who's the victim in that story. And, uh, the show's attempts to, to centralize her in the narrative and, and not being so successful at it. Um, I think the show, the staircase is able to, uh, you know, avoid that trap by really just picking it up, picking the genre apart and um, being able to have a little bit more not fun with it. But um, yeah, zoom out a little bit and, and have some bigger things to say about it. Um, the rest of this list includes a lot of shows you've heard us talking about at various points. I wrote about Our Flag Means Death, but I would have just as happily written about We Crashed or Severance, which are both on the list. Um, Rebecca, you wrote about Atlanta, which I think we've talked about a little less, and we had at least one listener kind of ask us if we could talk more about it. Um, and I've heard a, a really um, up and down variety of things about this season, but it seems like it, it's held up for you. Yeah, I think, you know, they had a long break between seasons, and I was really curious if uh, they could bring it back and sort of, um, keep up the quality that they've had the first two seasons. And for me, it works. You know, some episodes work better than others, but I just think the 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 writing is so strong and the characters are so uh, interesting. And I, I just find it to be such a um, singular voice. And, and Donald Glover is, is so talented that I, I, I overall feel like it's still one of the best shows on TV. Something I, I recently caught up with, um, I, I don't think it made our list, but um, I wanted to highlight, um, I finished we, uh, we Own This City, the David Simon show mm-hmm. oh, yeah. uh, about Baltimore. And man, oh man, is John Bernthal amazing on that show. I mean, he, you know, he's coming off of a really great, um, maybe close to a supporting nomination performance in uh, King Richard. Um, and he plays a horror, I mean, a horrible person on the show. He's, he's a very corrupt cop in Baltimore who... Um, just does many many bad things but the performance is is incredible so i i really think that he should be on a lot of watch lists for whatever awards I, they qualify for because i think the show premiered too late for this year's emmys i don't know it's, no, it's, oh, it's eligible oh it is okay all right well then keep an eye out for him but i just i was just really blown away by his work in that show yeah i did an interview with him recently that's up on the site and uh, you know, he obviously is known for sort of going really deep in, in characters, but he did like three months of ride alongs with Baltimore cops. And he talked to Wayne Jenkins, uh, you know, from prison on the phone multiple times. And like, I think that performance is so incredible. And I just wish it were more in the conversation. I mean, it's so crowded. It's honestly hard to tell what's in the conversation at this point. But his his work is really really fantastic. But the Emmys always always give a ton of things to David Simon shows. So I think <laughs> yes. especially the, yeah. especially yeah. the yeah. actors, yeah. the actors yeah. always yeah. do well. Yeah. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q and A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. 
you earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, Richard, let's hop back to your best movies of the year list uh, so far for a second, because also on your list is a new release this week, which is Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, um, which we certainly talked about from the Sundance Film Festival, the same place as um, You Won't Be Alone that we just mentioned. Um, And I I think in terms of Oscar-y movies from the first half of the year, this is certainly one to discuss. It's got this big juicy leading role from Emma Thompson, who is a real creative force in making this movie happen. Um, It's a very light movie, but it it stuck with me and it it seems like it stuck with you as well. Oscar, except I think it's an Emmys play. I don't think they're, I don't think it's going to qualify. Yeah, I think you're right. Did we ever, they're just putting it on Hulu. I thought we decided that wasn't true. Yeah, no. (laughs) Maybe it was just my wishful thinking. Yeah, it's, it's a really, really boggling choice by, I guess, Disney at this point. (laughs) You know, uh, it's a searchlight movie. Um, because Emma Thompson is amazing in it. And, um, and uh, you know, it's it's very much a COVID movie in that it's two people in a room um, for the most part. And um, that but it, but it uses that limit uh, really well. Like, I, I think it fills that space um, and, you know, it feels like a play in a good way. Um, and uh, but there is, you know, there's some cinema to it as well. But yeah, I think it really comes down to um, Daryl McCormick, who plays, you know, who's the other the other lead is is great, a great find and, and you know, very appropriately sexy and engaging and all that but um thompson is really doing something that um i just don't feel like i've seen her do in a long time or ever maybe and uh it's it 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 should be richly rewarded and i don't understand why the powers that be don't see the obvious nomination that they, that she would get if 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 that movie was campaigned right here's my question hard to qualify it right right Sorry, that, I, well yeah. that's what i'm wondering can they change their mind and put it into theaters in the next few months if once they hear people like us talking about this but won't it, i think it would have had to have been in theaters first first right? and I they'd only so. they'd have to change their mind in like the next two days yeah well, it's, uh, it is a so, shame i think yeah. you're right it'd be nice to see her in that conversation i mean this and we've been talking about it since sundance you know like the fact that she gives a really great performance in this movie has been known since the moment that it premiered so why i don't know it's so, like, Richard, you were tweeting over the weekend about the tale. Like, this yeah. is a digression, um, which is just this really amazing, like, bleak movie mm. um, that was Emmy qualifying because it was an HBO release. Um, and it's not like it didn't exist. It's not like it didn't get seen by people, but it feels like it didn't get its due in kind of the same way as Good Luck You, Leo Grand is here. Like, I, I hate grappling with this feeling because I value the Emmys a lot, but it's really, it's different, right? It is. I, and I tweeted about the tale because I was thinking about the Leo Grand situation. I mean, mm. the, the movies are could not be more different. <laughs> uh, the tale is a really harrowing uh, kind of memoir about sexual assault um, uh, or abuse. And um uh, but but both of those are, are examples of Sundance movies that got plucked up by big companies, um, and then those companies kind of didn't really do justice, do right by those titles. I don't think you know. I don't know if the tale was really a th- that wouldn't have made any money in theaters. But like Laura Dern is incredible in it, as is um, Jason Ritter and and uh, Elizabeth Debicki. Like it's it it's it's a very it, it's on HBO Max now. If people want to watch it. Um, it, it, it's a it's a really sterling film and and i think leo grand is not quite a, at that level but like 
I, I just don't understand. Maybe there is some sort of backroom calculus that I don't understand that like there, it makes the most sense to do it this way. But from my admittedly um, half ignorant vantage point, I'm like, I just don't get it. <laughs> I think that's like Leo Grand was one of the biggest movies at Sundance. It felt like this year and um, to, to sort of, put it on streaming i mean the tinfoil hat in you know where in me and i heard this echoed elsewhere like is like this is just further like disney just kind of burying searchlight you know um and Mm. it's going to become a hulu only kind of endeavor much in the same way that fx is kind of gradually becoming um and that'll be that and they just don't want to have um they don't want to have like theatrical releases or campaigns for these movies that's tragic i don't want that to be true I really don't either, because, I mean, if, if Searchlight goes, I guess we have Neon yeah. kind of coming up. And so there mm-hmm. are, are other players in the game, but Searchlight has been a stalwart for, for many years now. Yeah. If you look at that, I mean, Kate, as Katie knows, I have a lot of feelings about that Emmy TV movie category. Yes, <laughs> I was just going to turn to you. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it is in an interesting place because last year, uh, two of the five nominees were those kind of sundance premieres uh, you had uncle frank which alan ball directed starring paul bettany and sylvie's love starring tessa thompson and they both lost to dolly parton's christmas on the square which <laughs> i mean <laughs> which i enjoyed it, it, it is not a knock on dolly parton's christmas on the square to say that it's just a wildly amorphous category where you have streamers um acquiring um you know, in those cases, I think decently reviewed movies out of festivals and then just burning them off with Emmy campaigns because they probably won't go the distance with Oscars. So that's one side of it. And then you have on the other side, the year before that was Bad Education, um, Mm -hmm. which HBO, much like The Tale, acquired um, out of a festival, in that case, Toronto, and then put up for Emmy consideration. Um, And that's a movie that um, I think could have gotten a kind of Oscar run. Maybe it wouldn't have gone too far, but um, it just doesn't get that same sort of play, uh, unfortunately, uh, that it would in an Oscar campaign. And it just becomes part of this weird sci- Emmy sideshow that's not even a part of the main ceremony anymore. They don't, you know, those categories are now, the TV movie category is now, um, is part of the creative arts ceremony the week before. So... Yeah. It, yeah, and the actors are are uh, lumped in with limited series, um, which is uh, gets a lot more attention yeah, for various they're, reasons they're because of structure of TV. They're at an automatic disadvantage. Yeah, like Hugh Jackman loses to Mark Ruffalo uh, for a performance that Richard, I know you and I have talked about, it could have been his Oscar. Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yep. I, I think we've just gotten to a point where, you know, the sort of, quote, made-for-TV movie, that concept is very old. Um, and we have plenty. Netflix releases new films all the time, and it, it's and it's more associated with movies. But when you go to the other streamers and other things like that, I think a standalone debut movie just somehow doesn't sit right in like the kind of broader kind of cultural mind. You know, it's like no, it's either a series or it's a this or it's that. And like I think movies that kind of show up on the platform um, from from festivals or wherever they they just there's not. Um, they haven't figured out how to like remarket those, you know, TV movies used to be kind of an event on HBO at least. Um, and now it just, they kind of just enter into the streaming world and, and fade away, which I, I think they need to, if they're going to keep acquiring things, they need to figure out how to, to better position them on the sites. I think that is one place that Netflix has better figured out um, how to do that. Um, mainly just by, 
investing an insane amount of money into Oscar campaigns, but there is also <laughs> a real sense that when there is a movie that they care about, there is a lot put behind it, um, a lot of marketing, a lot of noise around it um, in, in press and things like that. And, and I do think that that has stood out among the streamers for sure. Well, David, I was just going to ask you and I were talking about how we both watched the Adam Sandler movie Hustle, um, which is out now, and um, he's really good in it. Is it Emmy eligible next year or is it Oscar eligible this year? I believe that is Oscar eligible. Um, that's insane that that's Oscar eligible and Leo Grant is it. I know it's different companies. From but what I've heard my mind here. at Netflix, it is, you know, being floated as a potential Oscar play. So, so I guess it played in a theater somewhere just as a like a safekeeping kind of thing before they put it on Netflix. The thing is, <laughs> for us reporters, it really is impossible to track where mm-hmm. these movies are playing because at the end of the day, they are streaming and the vast, vast, vast majority of people, including us, are going to watch them on the streaming platform. And so it becomes a matter of qualification, really, if they do go out in theaters. And I, I know Netflix particularly is looking at um, changing its theatrical strategy. They've had filmmakers criticize it, um, criticize the way that their movies were rolled out in the past. Um so that may change coming into this Oscar season, but regardless, um, this is a streaming company and the movies are viewed that way. So, so it's always hard to know. Like, I truly can't answer that question. I don't know where it played, but I assume it played somewhere. It might have played at the Paris in New York because they own that, that theater. Is it, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're playing Spiderhead there, the new uh, film from Jessica Kaczynski uh, based on George Saunders novel or a short story rather. Um, that is a Condé Nast um, production. Yeah, sure is. Um, but, you know, I think otherwise you, uh, David and Rebecca, you guys might need to just do a stakeout outside some theater in Tarzana every week and see like <laughs> what Netflix movie briefly plays there. <laughs> because that, that'll give us the, the answers to um, to what's qualifying and what isn't. I am doing a, a quick Google and it looks like it's playing in Monrovia at a theater and Glendale. There you and go. A couple other, so it is in a couple theaters. Yeah. There enough to qualify. There. There we go. They would be uh, it, the fact that we are the people who should know that and we don't is um, it tells you something. Well, just speaking briefly at the Sundance Film Festival and movies you can watch right now. Cha Cha Real Smooth, um, which you heard me talk to the director of uh, Cooper Rife uh, earlier this week on the interview episode of the show um, is also out this week. Uh, and I think worthy of your attention. It appears it's also playing in limited theaters. So it will be an Oscar conversation at some point. Um uh, David, you and I talked about it on the interview episode, uh, and we both recommend people see it, right? Yeah, Dakota Johnson's pretty great in it, uh, and Cooper Rife is definitely on the rise. Yeah, he really feels like someone who, you know, he's 25, so he'll be making movies for a really long time. And I don't like how you keep throwing his age at me. I don't appreciate it. I just need you to be aware. <laughs> we all need to know about who's coming up to eat our lunch, um, which he, I don't think he would say he is, but, you know, keep an eye on that guy. <laughs> I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> 
We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) So for our Pride flashback today, David, you brought us in and out, uh, which you have discussed on another podcast recently, which I am using to expect that you come with all the historical research about this 1997 movie, um, which... We can all talk about how we remember it. I remember it very well and hold it very close. Um, why was In and Out the film you wanted to revisit this week? Um, I think it has a, it holds an interesting place right now in uh, the gay movie canon. I, I think it's pretty divisive uh, and polarizing. Um, I did discuss it on a podcast fairly recently, uh, The Queer Quadrant, which is a great podcast people should listen to, um, and. I I can never get tired of talking about this movie because it was major for me uh, as a child, and it was one. It's one that I hold very close, and it's also one that has one of my favorite all time ask. Uh, uh, oh, sorry, one of my favorite all time acting Oscar nominations for Joan Cusack. Yes. Um. What's What's the backstory of you seeing this movie as a child? Well, um, let's see. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think well, I'll set up the movie first because I, I think it, it kind of ties into that. But it's it's a movie. Um, it's a 1997 movie, as you said, Katie. Uh, and it's very much a 90s movie, which is part of what I love about it. Um, but it stars Kevin Klein as um, a high school teacher who is really beloved in his small town. And... Um, he, one of his former students, played by Matt Dillon, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. wins an Academy Award and uh, outs his teacher as gay, um, essentially saying, you know, he's great and he's gay. <laughs> um, and this in, in a direct riff on Tom. And Hanks's I was about to Oscar say this. Speech. This yeah. is the rare movie that is literally inspired by an Oscar speech by Tom Hanks's speech for Philadelphia. And so that alone, I think merits, uh, make, merits discussion on the podcast, uh, <laughs> born from Oscar history. Um, and, and the movie is really about him navigating being outed. Um, and it's a, it's a painful thing, but it's also a chance for him to sort of learn to actually live as himself and be comfortable with himself and not have to hide that part of his identity. And it's a 90s studio comedy, so there's lots of really broad silliness. There is a kiss with Tom Selleck that is forever etched in, in memory. <laughs> um, and I love revisiting <laughs> it over and over. Um, and, and there's also, um, I think the, where it gets a little tricky is this question of self-acceptance versus stereotypes. Because there's a, a famous sequence in which he's listening to this tape that's essentially teaching him how to be a man. And he ultimately cannot uh, follow the tape's instructions because he just wants to break out and dance. And uh, young David watching this felt that, found that extremely moving uh, <laughs> because, mm. you know, the movie does definitely um, trade in stereotypes, but I think it also understands a certain uh, femininity in men as something that doesn't have to be, you don't have to be ashamed of. And for me, that was major to see, to see him sort of break out in this ridiculous uh, flamboyant dance um, is, is not a moment of shame in the film. It's a moment of pride. And uh, here on Pride Month, uh, I think that's something <clears throat> we're celebrating. 
Richard, where were you in 1997 when Kevin Klein uh, danced to uh, I Will Survive? I was in the theater seeing that movie. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I I think it's a, it's a great, you know, it, this is a very much feels to me like a kind of movie that studios don't make anymore. Yeah. You know, this big glossy comedy with a single writer, Paul Rudnick, who, you know, is now a longtime New Yorker contributor and stuff and playwright. And um, it just it just works. I, I think one thing about it that like sticks out to me now here in 2022 is this is the most stacked cast. I mean, there are just like every, yeah. even the smallest roles are played by great people. I mean, Lauren this Ambrose. <laughs> yeah. Lauren Ambrose is yeah. incredible. This is obviously, so Shalom Harlow is in the model uh, is in the movie as his June squib. And of course they've done so many films together since. Yes. Um, yeah. They're kind of Iconic duo. Spencer and Tracy of, you know, or whatever. <laughs> not, not Spencer, what am I saying? What am I trying to say? Hepburn and Tracy. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, Bob Newhart's amazing. Debbie Reynolds is incredible. Wil- Wilford Brimley. It's just on and on and on. Um, it's it's such a it's such a well tailored movie, um, similar to something like First Wives Club from uh, the year before, and uh, I miss that kind of rich seeming like the like I don't mean mon- monetarily, but just sort of like there's so much depth of texture to this big studio comedy, and I don't think we see that much anymore. And and the gay aspect of it, I think you know, uh, rewatching it, I was a little bit nervous that it would sort of ring a, a bit wrong you know with all of our kind of hindsight but it actually doesn't i think it's yep. i think for what it's about a small town guy who is kind of he's outed to other people but he's kind of outed to himself um the the, the sort of timid exploration of what that might mean uh fits the story because he he's not you know he's not living some secret life um uh it, it it's a it's all a discovery for him and everybody else Rebecca, you want to go? Yeah, I'd never seen the film before, so this was my oh, first wow. watch. I don't. Where were know. you in 1997? What were you up to? Uh, I was 13, so <laughs> I don't know what I was doing, but not watching this movie. And I, it felt really um, like I, I really loved sort of stepping back into that sort of 90s, uh, you know, as you're both talking about uh, film and and this sort of comedy, and and I really really enjoyed it. I and then I was reading this piece. Um, on Vanity Fair from like 2017 that was with the writer Paul Rudnick and sort of saying that, you know, there were people who saw this trailer and sort of assumed that, you know, the whole thing was a mistake and and he was really straight and that would be like the source of the movie's comedy. And and then, you know, sort of when they were in the theater discovered it, you know, it was a really a coming out story. And I just thought that must have been such a, I don't know, such a unique time for this film to come out. So yeah, I, I thank you, David, for picking it. So I, I feel like I'm glad I got to add this to the my experience. I definitely think everyone um, I, should watch it. It's yes, I if agree. only for the time machine. <laughs> I would be interested in someone who was born in 2002 watching this movie mm-hmm. and what it would mean to them. Like, I think the the context of the late 90s and which is you know we all remember and I you know if you watch movies from that period you can kind of get. Like just the way that coming out was something that was brave. And you know, I think Paul Rednick talked about there had been so many dramas about coming out being like tragic and sad. And he wanted like a joyful version of it. And there there just weren't very many of those at this time. Um, but I think that it's it can be hard to put yourself in that mindset if you weren't around for it. I would love for some of our younger listeners <laughs> to maybe let us know what they think of this movie. Um, I also watched this for a different podcast. And David, you're not the only one who gets to be on another <laughs> podcast um, called Screen Drafts, where it was about all the films in 1997. And there were just so many movies from that year specifically of just people being like, oh, God, 
there's gay people now and like we have to like be nice to them and like embrace them but like do we have to like um it, uh, as good as it gets really stuck stood yeah. out for me and that in that theme um and i think knowing that that was kind of the tone of culture at the time like ellen came out months before this movie came out i think they must have done like an adr line of some reporter shouting at kevin klein like do you know ellen <laughs> um it was just it was just everywhere and this movie captures that in this really i, I think joyful way yeah, and, and it, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. This is now, I keep rewatching this movie uh, for various reasons because I also showed my husband the movie before the first podcast. So I've rewatched it like three times in the last few years, which is pretty crazy. Wow. Um, I'm, a, I'm a stan. What can I say? Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm also, and, and so the last time I watched this, I was also really interested in the fact that I do feel like I am probably of the last generation that gets a certain nostalgic quality out of just the aesthetic of the movie and of mm. the time period because the movie is such a product of its time that I do wonder people who not only aren't as you know the the coming out process is not what it was in 1997 or even 2007 um but also those movies have a different sort of appeal for people who didn't grow up with them obviously um and so I, I don't know how the movie ages in that respect, because um, it definitely has that sort of quality for me that um, and I think it sounds like everybody on this podcast that um, it wouldn't have for someone who's not of our age. They spent money on it. That's the quality. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. It, it looks it looks expensive. Um, and I, I, I echo Katie's, um, you know, plea to have people born in 2002 watch the movie because I'd be curious, curious to hear their perspective. But ask your parents, kids. If, you're, if you were born in 2002, be sure. This is an R-rated film, I believe. So, Yeah, um, and it's still 2005, right? So we're all, we're exactly, we're all very young. They're, they're, <laughs> they're in daycare. Um, yeah, and I just want to also go back to the Joan Cusack's nominated turn, which is yes. so good. And, and, you know, running down a nighttime street in a wedding dress, screaming, does anyone want to marry me? Like, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it, That could be a sort of mean joke about like marriage, desperate women. It's not in the, in this movie's hands or in Cusack's hands. It, it is a, an empathetic, really crucial component of the film's arc, you know, um, that, that there, you know, there would be someone jilted by this, you know? Mm. Um, and, and I think they handle her very fairly and she's so excellent in it. And it's such a rare example of the Academy seeing a standout comedy performance and saying yep you get to come to the show um it only yeah. happens it feels every you know seven years or something if that well and kevin klein being a really famous example of it for winning for a fish called wanda yeah. um it's like he passed the torch down to joan cusack mm -hmm. yeah. yeah and especially for a movie that didn't get other nominations you know to to mm -hmm. really for her to stand out to that degree you just don't see that very often yeah, like even Melissa and McCarthy and Bridesmaids, like that movie had a screenplay nomination. It was a little bit more Oscar-y right. than In-N-Out was. Yeah, I rewatched the scene where, you know, he's just kind of jilted her at the altar and she's yelling at him and it ends with her shouting, fuck Barbra Streisand <laughs> at the church. Um, and there's just there's so much emotion to it. Like you can see how much she loved him in this relationship, even though like he, you know, he had been lying to himself the whole time and her. Um, it's just really beautiful. What a what a treasure she is. Absolutely. Um, one last thing. Uh, how do we feel about the fake Oscars in this? I was reading a piece that our our friend and uh, returning future guest Joe Reed wrote 
where he was like, why would Cameron Drake's movie get three long clips in the middle of an Oscar ceremony? And I was like, okay, Joe, fair. Uh, I respect you on the Oscars more than anyone, but I love these fake Oscars and Paul Newman for Coot uh, so much. Paul, Paul Newman for Coot is incredible. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Because I think there's a, the, the, the movie for the most part is um, set in, in the real world, you know? Um, but I think some of the Oscar stuff, it's like that, 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 that tips it into kind of higher satire in a way, sure. um, which could be disruptive to the movie's tone, but I think does work because you get the specificity of Paul Newman and Coot, you know, which is exactly <laughs> a movie that he would have made had, you know, in the sliding doors universe. And it, it feels like a tip too to, um, you know, the roots of the movie, the origins of the mm-hmm. movie and really paying tribute, uh, and spoofing Oscar history and Oscar moments as much as you can. I mean, I, I ate those moments up. I, I think that they in a way help make the movie because they do take it to another plane. Like you were saying, Richard, um, cause it is, you know, a, a largely pretty realistic movie. I mean, within the constraints of a 90 studio comedy, um, those are the moments that I think take into a more imaginative realm. Let's say it also provides a lovely, you know, lost utopia where a bunch of high school students were eagerly watching the Oscars. I mean, <laughs> yes, it's, the Oscars matter so much in this movie. It is, you know, families gathering to watch. Yeah. What a time. I really love that Glenn Close walks out to present to the um, music from Sunset Boulevard, the musical. Like, that's just <laughs> such a specific rooted yeah. in time thing that the Oscars absolutely would do in real life. Um, someone was paying attention. It is funny to think that um, the Oscars for this movie year, 1997, would actually be watched with that kind of intensity because of Titanic. You know, uh, so, so the prophecy did sort of become true, at least for that year. <laughs> Steven Seagal will get nominated someday for Snowball in Hell. Right. It's, it's coming. That does it for this week's show. Next week, our Pride Month series will continue with Pariah, the 2011 film from D. Reese. So catch up on that with us and join us. You can find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, where Richard's list of the best movies of the year and our collective list of the best TV of the year are available, along with so much else. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. And David. David Canfield 97. You can also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash little gold men or text 213-513-7160. Our editor and producer this week was Dave Gonzalez. And this week's award for the best description of our Pride Month flashbacks goes to David Canfield. Watch the sad game movies. The Run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, We should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. Yeah, we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asha, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mao. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.